1: The days when gardeners waged war on pests and diseases and weeds are now past. We take a more balanced view and we don't think of pests as being pests as such, more part of the garden ecosystem that can be managed without the use of chemicals. And with today's lineup of guests, I'll be exploring why a more natural approach is better. We're hearing from Guy Singh watson who transformed his family dairy farm into an organic business that now delivers veg boxes to 50,000 customers a week. Biologist Dave Goulson is here to tell us why we need to look after our insects. And Nikki Barker will be offering advice on how to grow a great garden on sandy soil. I'm Guy Barter. Let's get gardening with the RHS. When Guy Singh Watson started running the family business Riverford Farm, chemicals were banished. And as a self-confessed vegetable nerd, he decided to start a veg delivery scheme. So from one man in a wheelbarrow, delivering homegrown organic produce to friends, he created a company whose name has become a byword for sustainable food. I spoke to him to hear how he made this happen and why chemicals aren't part of the business. He started by telling me some of his earliest memories growing up on the farm.
2: Oh, I was stomping around in my wellies when I was barely old enough to walk, I think. Lots of cow muck everywhere. Being buried alive in a silage pit while I was taking a nap. I think it must have been age three or four and someone tipped a load of silage on top of me. That was almost the end of it all, I had to be dug out. <laughs> it was a busy, messy working farm and I loved every bit of it.
1: A dairy farm in Devon. I imagine that would be quite muddy. Yeah,
2: no, it was. I can remember stomping up and down the field actually following my dad while he was ploughing with a T20 and a two-furrow plough being mesmerised by the furrows being turned over. That was a pretty early memory.
1: You went to New York after university. um, Why did you want to come back and work on the farm?
2: Well, I was working as a management consultant in New York, and um, Mm. I suppose I just wanted to do something which was sort of tangibly useful, and I desperately wanted to get back outside again, so Mm. I think it had to be something to do with food. And, farming, and I guess, you know, Riverford has allowed me to do both.
1: How long after you got back to the farm did you decide to convert to organic growing?
2: Well, I suppose within the first few months I had an interest and I, I think initially I thought maybe I'd sell kind of specialist vegetables to high-class yeah. restaurants and hotels and stuff and uh, I suppose within the first year or two I decided that actually I just wanted to grow organically, and that just grew over the years that it started off being largely led by, you know, the market for organic vegetables. And over 30 years, I've just become increasingly committed to wanting to farm in a way which is sympathetic with nature and takes away as little as possible from nature, I suppose.
1: So at the outset, you ploughed up a bit of the farm, I take it, and um, you got yourself some kit and you started growing veg. Would would that sum it up?
2: Well, it was incredibly small scale. There was only one flat and fertile field on the farm. You know, it was three Uh acres, and that's the one that I started in with a borrowed tractor and mostly borrowed machinery, a wheelbarrow, and I was selling vegetables, delivering out of the back of my car. You know, that was the first year or two. It was on a Uh very, very small scale. And I think in many ways that's the best way to learn. I mean, you're very close to the soil and close to your crop and, you know, you get, you know, not just learning intellectually about how you get almost a sort of visceral gut-felt feel about, you know, what makes a plant happy and growing well.
1: When you made the switch to organic, were there any specific changes that you found particularly challenging?
2: Well, I guess getting rid of the docks. On a dairy farm (laughs) always has lots of docks. So that was quite a challenge in the early years. Um, We had some challenges with pests and diseases. We had rust, puxinia and I grew a lot of leeks the first Mm. year and they went down with rust. We had a very damp, wet autumn as we often do in Devon.
3: Mm. I hadn't
2: grown a resistant variety and it just ripped right through them. And I thought I was gonna lose the lot for a bit. So Mm. that was a bit worrying, but you know, I had lots of people whispering in my ear, what you need to do is spray them with this fungicide. And I have to say I was tempted, but I didn't. Mm. And the temperatures dropped and the leaks carried on growing. And with the dropping temperature, the, the, the fungi stopped spreading and the leaks just grew away from it. So I suppose it taught me to, you know, have a bit of faith in nature and, you know, maybe not reach for the chemical container quite as readily as um, most farmers mm. do.
1: Mm. And um, so speaking of pests and diseases how do your growers deal with pests and diseases? I think the non-organic listeners would be quite interested to know I think firstly you
2: have to really understand the ecology of your field not just the pests but the things that might eat the pest you know if it's an insect Mm -hmm. we do a lot to try and encourage lacewings and hoverflies and then we will sometimes in the greenhouses introduce parasitic wasps and so, incarsia and other ones. So it's understanding that sort of balance between the pest and its predator, but also between the pest and the crop, you know, so not growing varieties which are susceptible to, well, rust in leeks, for instance, mm. is very important. Potato blight, you know, growing blight-resistant varieties, choosing the right site for the crop, and then just trying to make sure, as far as you're doing everything to make that crop happy, because a vigorously growing crop that isn't waterlogged that has had a a growing in an active healthy soil is always going to be more resistant to disease and and this has really come home to me the last few years when i've been trying to grow strawberries organically for 35 years and i really think it's only in the last two or three years that seem to have cracked it and the secret to that was making our own really good quality compost, which mm. just seems to contribute to having you know, a healthy soil and a healthy plant. So, you know, the big problems I've not seen an aphid on our strawberries, which is mm. pretty extraordinary because we used to get loads of them. Probably I was putting too much, too raw cow muck on them and they were mm. overfed with nitrogen. So, well balanced compost, but most incredibly, we have. You know, really low levels of mildew and botrytis, which mm-hmm. are the, the real challenges growing organic strawberries. And I put this down to growing them, you know, with a really good quality compost, not too much of them. They're grown in a, on a south-facing slope in a fairly airy site. I mean, plenty of wind going through them. And honestly, we have no viruses, no insect, no aphid problems. And I really put this down to the compost.
1: What's the basis of your composting? Because I guess some vegetable residues only go so far. It's a kind of vegan
2: compost, actually. Not Mm -hmm. that I am a vegan. Uh, And it is a mixture of vegetable waste. So, you know, sometimes the small proportion of vegetables, which for whatever reason don't end up going in the boxes, We compost them with wooden boxes actually when we import Mm -hmm. veg it often comes in wooden boxes we don't shred them or anything we just chuck the whole box (laughs) in mixed up with the veg we have quite a few tree surgeons who drop off the wood chip and a few gardeners we mix that up it goes up to 60 degrees centigrade 60 to 70 degrees centigrade within a day or two and is turned fairly actively over the first month or two and then probably only once every two weeks over the next couple of months. And after mm. about four months, it's ready to be to use. And we find even the quite large bits of wood have broken down mm. by then.
1: And I suppose one of the things that listeners would be particularly interested in are slugs and snails. Do you see much yeah. in the way of slugs and snails on a field scale?
2: I mean, typically when you convert to organic, you have slug problems for the first couple of years. And then what happens is because you're not pouring all those insecticides and fungicides on the soil, you get a much more active soil, and an active soil will have lots of predators in it which are going to attack the slugs and snails. I mean, we also have you know, lots of hedgehogs and toads on the farm, and we will do our best. You know, We have, make lakes specifically to encourage the toads and when you see the toads coming (laughs) out in may and and setting off across the farm my god you wouldn't want to be a slug because the ground is just (laughs) heaving with them
1: if a gardener or an organization wants to go organic what would be your advice to them
2: do it (laughs) (laughs) but do it with your eyes open to the uh, problems that you're likely to encounter along the way so the fungi and bacteria and the plants in that field, they've got a big readjustment to make. They're going cold turkey and that takes a while. So grow something that's cheap, that helps to build up the structure and the health of the soil. And there's nothing better than a grass clover lay for that um, during the conversion period. And then when you plough it down, you'll have a much healthier um, soil. And as it rots down, it'll feed your next crop. And I suppose also go and spend that two years while you're converting to learn as much as you can, go and visit other people, find out what works well. And the thing about organic farming is that every farm is different, every field is different. And I think if you throw enough insecticides, fungicides and fertiliser at a crop, you can probably get it to grow in most fields. The same does not work with organic. You have to really understand your soil and what it can do well and what it needs help with. Yeah, I hope that's some help and it will get easier. Don't be too surprised if in your first year you do have lots of slugs and snails. It does tend to, as nature finds its balance, it tends to get easier in the fourth year and by the fifth year, you'll be doing well.
1: That was terrific. I was really interested by the use of compost, particularly composting bits of wood, shredded boxes and wood chip that does seem to make a particularly long-lasting and effective compost. I'm certainly going to try that myself. Much like Guy at Riverford, my next guest also believes that we have to learn to live as part of nature, not separate from it. Biologist Dave Goulson's latest book is titled Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. Now that grabs your attention.
3: I can't explain it, you know, some people love trains or rockets or dinosaurs. I just love bugs and even when I was, you know, I was primary school I remember collecting caterpillars and rearing them up in jam jars and them turning into moths and just thinking the whole thing was amazing and uh, been lucky enough to make a career out of it.
1: But as Dave explains in Silent Earth, insects of all types are suffering serious declines due to a mix of man-made factors including the ever-increasing use of pesticides over the last 70 to 80 years, habitat loss, often linked with industrialised farming which makes the landscape simple with big fields, few hedges, flowers and so on, climate change, light pollution and more so i wanted to ask dave how gardeners can become more active in the fight to save our insect friends
3: people have known that some of our insects were declining for a long time but much more recently in 2017 this study from germany was published it was based on a whole bunch of insect enthusiasts in germany putting malaise traps which catch flying insects on nature reserves all over germany And when they started to analyse their data, they basically found that between 1989 and 2016, the average weight of insects caught in their traps fell by 76%. So seemingly three quarters of the flying insects in Germany vanished in 26 years, which, you know, is really concerning, alarming. When it was published, it got a lot of newspaper coverage. And I think it was a bit of a turning point when people woke up and, and thought, you know, crikey there really is something serious happening here.
1: I think one of the questions that I'm going to ask is one that really annoys me (laughs) because um, I'm going to ask why we should care. I I think insects have a right to exist whether we care or not but um, for people who don't share my reasoning why should people care?
3: Firstly I 100% agree with you you know people often say what is the point of wasps or mosquitoes or slugs or whatever it is they don't like and You know, you can turn it around and say, what is the point of us? What is the point of people? You know, (laughs) anyway, in the case of insects, clearly they do do a lot of useful things. They are the bulk of biodiversity. They make up um, more than two thirds of all known species. They're food for huge numbers of birds, bats, reptiles, freshwater fish like trout, amphibians. They all depend on insects for food. And they're biocontrol agents. Admittedly, often the things they're eating are insect pests, but nonetheless, those biocontrol agents are really important. And they're recyclers of dung and dead trees and leaves and all sorts of things. And of course, they're pollinators. The one thing that's quite well appreciated, 87 percent, if I remember correctly, of all the world's plants need pollinating by some kind of animal and in, a, in some cases that's in the tropics it's done by birds or bats or whatever but most of it's being done by insects of one type or another and three quarters of the crops we grow in the world you wouldn't get a full yield without pollination in some cases you'd get no yield at all so you know love them or loathe them we all need them
1: Well, I like to think that gardeners could be agents of change if they listen to podcasts like this and then they spread the information and concern through their acquaintances. We're not preaching entirely to the converted here, I like to think.
3: I I hope not. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm here, really. And I completely agree with you. I mean, gardens present huge opportunities, both for actually providing more habitat for insects, but also... For engaging people with caring about these issues. You know, I mean like climate change or when you see on the news the rainforest being burned down or that kind of thing. It's really depressing and you don't feel there's anything you personally can do that's gonna help. But insects are different because they live all around us, they live in our gardens in, in extraordinary numbers. You know, you can have literally thousands of species of insect living in a in an urban garden. And they respond really quickly. The, you know, most of them haven't gone extinct yet. And they recover in, in no time at all if we provide them with somewhere to live. You know, Very different to pandas or rhinos that might take huge periods of time to breed. Insects can breed fast. And we can all do stuff if we're lucky enough to have a garden or, or even a, a roof terrace or window box. Plant a lavender bush, put in some marjoram in a pot, and w- as soon as it flowers... Insects will find it, no matter where it is, in, even on the balcony in and in, you know, in central London. Somehow hoverflies, bumblebees will sniff it out and you'll be doing something positive. And obviously if you've got a whole garden to play with, you can do lots of things. Leaving a bit of space for nature or being a bit less tidy in your garden. Not mow your lawn every two weeks, not trim your hedge every five minutes, don't deadhead your flowers religiously, just leave a log pile in the corner and allow a few weeds to creep in and, and the insects will thank you. So your book's about relaxing, is it? <laughs> well, I often say to people, you know, because I know from my own family that my wife and my dad are both keen lawn mowers. So I, I spend my life battling with them over this and trying to persuade them, you know, instead of get the lawnmower out, get a deck chair out, make yourself a coffee or a gin and tonic or whatever and chill out. Because if you leave a lawn for a few weeks, most lawns Flowers will start to pop up, you know, as if by magic. And you, yeah, mine's full of all sorts of clovers and bird's foot trefoils and vetches and dandelions and God knows what. Um, it's fantastic and it, and it attracts loads of insects. And, of course, if you mow it, you ruin all that. And you actually suck up all the grasshoppers and things that might have moved in and kill them. I guess one thing I might add about wildlife gardening, I, I, I'm very bee-focused, so I tend to think mainly in terms of what plants we can grow, uh, getting people to grow native wildflowers wherever they can and that kind of thing. But we sh- shouldn't forget, as I often do, there are lots of other types of insects that live in other places, aquatic insects, that will really benefit. You know, put in a small pond in a garden and you get this amazing variety of interesting creatures that will turn up. And if you can leave a bit of a log pile for the, for the insects that like to eat dead wood, then that's fantastic too.
1: I'm an aphid man through and through, but of these millions and millions of insects out there, do you have a sneaking preference to one or another?
3: <laughs> the first one that comes into my head right now is not a bumblebee, although I spend my life looking at bumblebees, but the hairy-footed flower bee, which is a gorgeous, big, solitary bee, which will be coming soon to our gardens. They, they emerge in early spring. And they're beautiful things. And they're called the hairy-footed flower bee because the male has these big tufts of hairs on his middle legs. And when they're mating, he madly strokes the face of the female with his furry feet, and she seems to love it. Um, But they're gorgeous little things. They're they're very active. They fly very fast, buzz around. If you've got pulmonaria in the garden, that's almost guaranteed to attract them. And it's only a few weeks. They're kind of the, the harbingers of spring, so I always look forward to seeing them every year.
1: Thank you to Dave Goulson there for reminding us of why it's so important to consider insects in the garden. The decline of insect numbers really do stick in your mind. The 75% decline in the German study Dave mentioned was quite shocking. And I remember myself how common moths were when I was young, which was in the 1970s unbelievably, compared to how relatively scarce they are now. Aside from minimising chemical use, my favourite insect promoting things to do myself have always been to grow lots of flowering plants. So my tomatoes flower, my potatoes flower, my soft fruit flowers, Um, there's quite a lot of flowering weeds, I'm not sorry to say, and all of these support a surprising number of insects. If you're interested in learning more, Dave Goulson's book Silent Earth is a good place to start. Now, from insect health to soil health, RHS gardening advisor Nikki Barker is here to help. If you're a keen listener to the podcast, you might have already heard Nikki take us through how to care for different soil types. And today, it's sandy soils time to shine.
4: Sandy soils are actually really useful because they're quite light to work and you can recognise them because when you Pick up a bit of damp soil. It feels really gritty, almost like it would at the beach. So you can feel the particles of sand in it and it drains really well. And it's often quite acidic sandy soils in the UK. It's worth doing a pH test, but generally they are quite acidic, which means you can grow ericaceous plants, things like rhododendrons, camellias, etc. You can grow them in your sandy soil if you can improve the fertility so sandy soils drain really quickly take all that water down so the downside of that is the nutrient is also leaching out at the same time so they can often be not particularly fertile but you've still got a wide range of plants that you can grow on them things like hibiscus fuchsias, forsythia caryopteris. there's just an enormous range that will like them Herbaceous perennials grow really well on them, so echinacea, agapanthus, things like that. They need to have organic matter put on them to replenish that nutrient capability and also it helps hold the moisture into them in the summer. But the advantage of them is that they warm up quite quickly because in the spring they haven't got loads of water just sat there great for a lot of root vegetables as well if you're a vegetable grower you get fantastic carrots and things like that on them because it's easy for the vegetable roots to go down into them i haven't got sandy soil as i've said before i've got clay soil but my asparagus bed i've made it a 50 sand and it does amazingly well much better than when it was just clay soil It tends to be dry. You can get a lot of drought problems. So it can be more difficult to get plants established. You need to make sure you're keeping them well watered when you first the first couple of growing seasons that you plant them. But once they're established, and if you're choosing the right plants, make sure you choose ones that have some tolerance of drought. Then it's got lots and lots going for it. You won't be waterlogged and wet and miserable in the winter. If you're adding organic matter, it's also worth considering using something like root grow with mycorrhizal fungi and building up your nutrient content by doing that. If you just walk around generally in in nature, walk across the fields, there's not really anybody out there putting fertilizer on things that are generally growing wild and oak trees and things like that do pretty well and, and all sizes in between so I think just making sure your soil is healthy is more important often than adding fertilizer making sure that you've got plenty of aerobic activity going on plenty of air in there all of those microorganisms If they're too wet, you get anaerobic activity and your soil can be a bit smelly. And that's the sort of thing that happens in your compost bin if it gets too wet. So getting the air in there is really important. And that's why it's really important to have worms and other insects and microorganisms pulling that organic matter through. It aerates it for you. If you can reduce the amount you cultivate, get organic matter onto it, then nature seems to balance it out.
1: Thanks Nicky. I like sandy soil, which is just as well, because my garden is pure sand, I could dig it up and sell it to builders merchants if I wanted to. The same goes for Wisley. It's dry and it's hungry, but in the sun you can grow wonderful examples of lavender and rosemary, cistus and thyme, all those drought-resisting Mediterranean type shrubs, and mix them in with bulbs and drought resistant perennials like sedums to make a lovely display. Well, that's it for this week. For more on today's topics, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy gardening.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden and have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, i found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic Lawn Mower, the lawn is actually looking better.